Welcome aboard and buckle up. You're now listening to Shift Happens with Jim Milloway. Now, let's dive in, go deep, share ideas, and take a good look at what we, in the benefits industry, can do to accelerate the shift to the member-first economy. And now, live from Zero Studios, your host, the more infamous than famous, Jim Milloway. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shift Happens. I'm Jim Milloway. This podcast is an in-depth look at what we, in the benefits industry, can do to accelerate the shift to what we call the member-first economy, right? It involves an evolved mindset, right? Using modern approaches, customer delight, data analytics, and the world's best experience to shift the industry where it needs to be. My name is Jim Milloway. I'm CEO at Zero, and I'm also your host. Today, I'm really excited because we have a guest that I only get along with. Uh, I, I just so enjoy talking to her. She's one of the few people that that talks as much or maybe more and might be louder than me. So we'll see who can get the loudest today on the call. Uh, and that special guest is none other than Karen Simonton, who's the Strategic Alliance Director at the Ortho Forum. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about Karen and a little bit about Ortho Forum. Okay, good to be here, Jim. So thankful for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience at Shift Happens. What a great name. I'm Karen Simonton, and I'm a 30-plus-year veteran of the independent entrepreneurial medicine space. So I've never worked for a health system, never worked for a payer, always worked for physicians who are community-oriented stewards of healthcare for the patients in the areas where they live and civic and, and work. And I am now the Strategic Alliance Director for the Ortho Forum, which is 4,700 doctors in 150 different groups covering 47 states, all musculoskeletal and all living in vertically integrated collaborative care models, serving those communities with everything soup to nuts in the musculoskeletal space. And that that opportunity presented itself because I'd been a long-term member and a board member of the Ortho Forum when I was the CFO and the Chief Administrative Officer for Ortho Virginia, which is the largest multidisciplinary musculoskeletal center in the Commonwealth. And they're probably top 10 within that, uh, within that ortho forum. These groups are broken down into two separate subsets. Uh, one is ortho connect, which are groups that have uh, no more than 20 orthopedic owners and ortho forum where group size is on average about 45 shareholder uh, owners, but runs anywhere between 20 and 230. Wow. Okay. Tell us those big numbers again, the number of docs and how many states. So 4,700 doctors in 47 states in 150 groups. So 150 vertically integrated groups that contain all of those doctors and cover 47 states uh, in these united. It's incredible, right? And I, and I wanted you to repeat that because I want everybody listening today, right? And everybody that listens later on to realize we're not top. Ortho Forum isn't a potential solution for employers and broker advisors in a couple of different places. We're talking big numbers everywhere in the country. That is correct. That is correct. I love it. So, you, you know, you and I have all kinds of fun conversations and I want to, and I want to rehash one of, one, one of the ones we had before. Tell us why Karen Simonton thinks that independent orthopedic groups can save our healthcare system. So independent orthopedic groups are Main Street, not Wall Street. And they actually, they sort of follow the Health Rosetta community dividend strategy, which says we should be spending our healthcare money in the communities where healthcare is delivered. 
So they're not beholden to passive Wall Street shareholders. They're not beholden to private equity and the returns therein. Uh, they're not beholden to hospital systems. It's interesting. I work with a lot of data partners and data partners, many of the data partners that are looking at commercial claims data actually produce a tool that allows hospital systems to whip their doctors for out-of-network referrals. And so our, our physicians do not have a master. So they, the master is the patient and the pay, what the patient needs based on treatment and based on the most cost-effective and safe environment for their issue based on their clinically presenting symptoms and their comorbidities. Our physicians are incentivized to seek that for the patient as opposed to other uh, outside landlords. So this is, so for the people listening, right? So in a big, you know, kind of legacy health system where we're not talking about independent physicians, like leakage is a really bad word, right? So leakage is exactly what you were talking about, right? Like how do we make sure people within the system stay within the system? So that's a really interesting point, right? So you don't have any, your, your ortho partners, right? Within ortho connect and ortho form just simply don't have that concern. That's right. That's right. So we're working with those data partners to extract information that will help us create quality scorecards for our surgeons. And, and, and so again, the data is there and for hospitals and health systems, they're using it to, to work on leakage. We, leakage is not our issue. I wanna know if we've got a readmission problem or if we've got a patient who represents after treatment somewhere else, I wanna be able to see that. So I can understand that we've got issues with maybe that treatment didn't resolve the problem. I wanna look at surgical conversion rates to understand whether we've got a surgeon who's more aggressive than maybe what the benchmark standard would indicate. So we're using those commercial data partners for really much more exciting and invasive looks into quality. So you're uniquely, so all these independent ortho groups are uniquely positioned to advocate on behalf of the member, right? Where, and I love how you make that comparison, right, of Main Street versus Wall Street, right? These are not big financial practices. These are, these are the same docs that go to our same schools and our same churches and everyone living in the community. That's exactly right. And they're, they have the same issues that employers have with healthcare cost and appropriate navigation to good quality partners and managing pharmaceutical spend. And, and honestly, actually communicating with their employees about, you know, if you're given some type of pharmaceutical, did it actually work before we continue to just keep re-prescribing something that maybe the patient's not even taking? Like we have the same issues that employers have with their own health plans because we're employers. Yeah, you get it. Right. And we're, we're for-profit employers also. So we're, we're also supporting our municipalities with our taxes, both real estate, personal property, business, you know, B-pole taxes. We are paying the freight to make sure that the municipalities that we're, where we are serving patients are actually strong. I love it. I love it. Right. And, and, and it's a great mix, right? So, right. You've got smaller employers, right? So we're talking clinic with maybe with as little as I think you said 20, or do you have some that are even only have maybe five? Oh, the average shareholder size in that ortho connect group is probably about 12. So the, we're talking about groups that are five to 20. Right. And then the biggest group, who, how many, how many physicians, how big is the biggest group? The biggest group right now, and we've got another big merger that just went on in, uh, in Texas, ortho Lone Star, but the biggest group probably has a shareholder size of about 230. And so wow. there's a great big, there's a big one in Texas. There's a big one in Maryland, but there's the G8 or G10 pr probably, uh, well, I know of that G8 and G10, the largest groups within the ortho forum, we're talking about shareholder sizes over a hundred for every one of them. 
incredible. So just an incredible mix. So let me ask you this. So, you know, I've seen the data, right? You've seen the data. Employers probably haven't seen it as much of the data as we'd like them to see it. And, and probably the same for broker as advisors. How on earth are independent ortho groups delivering better health, better health outcomes and better surgical outcomes for a fraction of the cost when we're looking and making comparisons to large legacy healthcare systems? How are they doing this? So we're living in this golden age of site-of-service differential. And so most of these surgery centers, strangely enough, just to backtrack for a minute, there was a 20-year anniversary of a lot of pretty important entities in this space. So Orthoform had their 20-year anniversary last year. ASCA, which is the Surgical Centers of America, they had their 20-year anniversary last year. LeapFrog had their 20-year anniversary last year. And so what we've basically taken is this infant industry of let's do things entrepreneurially smart and let's create transparency and quality in that space. Those, those children are now getting their adolescent sea legs. And so site of service differential, which is don't do it in the hospital if you don't have to, and, and certainly don't do it inpatient unless you've got a patient that's really clinically indicated for inpatient. Don't do it at a hospital outpatient department unless they're clinically indicated for a hospital setting. Let's do them in a surgery center. And then to sort of further accelerate that, you know, some of our groups have operatories and in-office surgical suites. So it's not even a surgery center and there's no facility fee attached to the treatment at all. So think about things like really aggressive diabetic foot care. Really aggressive diabetic foot care includes a lot of evaluation and management and proprioception and actually taking people's socks off and looking at their feet and, and helping them better understand how to take care of themselves. But that kind of work for debridement and toenails and those kind of things can be done in an in-office uh, facility with zero facility cost. Right. And even outside of that, right? So an ortho forum member who, who we're close with and we have we have relationships with a bunch of them, right? But I, I think it's not just that site of service, but we're also seeing procedures that historically couldn't be done in that outpatient set, setting, shifting there. So we might be 18 months removed now because I still remember the call from Tulsa Bone and Joint, right? Where we're doing, where they're doing total knees, right? And we're sending people home the same day. Well, and Med Medicare has blown up the inpatient list. So now a lot of stuff is going to start flooding to the hospital outpatient department and then to the ASC. And so, so the other kind of things that we're people we're partnering with are people like Naon to say, how do we make sure that we have nursing staffing that's going to be appropriate for the increased level of acuity that is now going to move from the inpatient hospital setting out into these differing, different levels of um, cost with still having high standards of quality and attention to infection rates and attention to readmissions, and most importantly, attention to the patient. So yes. again, site of service is the first part. The second part, Jen, though, is going to be quality. And that, again, these data partners that we're working with are really providing aggregation of data that's already available that everybody, you know, our doctors can be seen in a lot of places. They just don't have aggregated data to understand what the report card in total looks like. But that's let's, close. Let's talk a little bit more about the site of service and the quality link. And so, uh, this is, a, this is a really good question we got from one of our listeners right now. And I think this segues perfect into it. What's Karen Simonton's opinion on these supposed centers of excellence programs, right? So think about the Walmart model where people are being asked to travel, right? For joint replacements or, you know, it, uh, other more complex procedures, right? Why are we telling those people they can't see their hometown docs? 
Right. So I will give uh, everybody who was involved in Centers of Excellence, um, Tom Emmerich, the, the Edison folks, and everybody else who lifted the idea of we don't have to take the same old, same old, and we don't have to deal with the status quo. We can lift people to Centers of Excellence and they can receive their treatment there. That is a good first stage in the quality discussion because it rattled the saber a little bit to say, hey, doctors in the communities where you're doing your work, please understand that we're gonna hold you to a quality standard. We're gonna make it visible to you and we're gonna ask you to get in line to, to actually meet that standard. So I think it was a perfect first step. And now the second step is for us to take that quality information and make sure that our communities are living up to that standard. Cause I don't think that somebody should have to get on a plane to be taken care of. But more importantly than that, when you lift you know, three or four patients in a community because they happen to work for Lowe's or they happen to work somewhere else that, that uses the COE. Well, that's great, but you've left everyone else in that community with the physicians that are there and you haven't provided those physicians the opportunity to optimize their care pathways. And that's what we really need to do because the community has to be whole. Plus, the, honestly, the money needs to stay in the community so we can hire more teachers and we can have better security and we can have better parks. It needs to stay in the community um, and I'm working with a partner here. And just to tell a short story, Lynchburg, Virginia, one, $1 billion in spend, 400 million disappears every year. It just disappears. It, it's not paid to facilities here. It's not paid to doctors here. It literally just disappears. So don't you think the, the municipality in Lynchburg, Virginia would like to have $400 million every year? You would think. I would think. You would think, well, that's interesting, you know, and you mentioned Tom Emmerich, right? I think he was really a trailblazer in this and a close friend of ours. And, you, you know, we need to get Tom on one of these podcasts and the folks at Edison Health, right? You know, so I'm lucky to know them well, right? Because I'm in Tulsa. And I think the Tulsa community done a good job of becoming like a really innovative hub for the health tech community, especially in these direct purchasing, right? Because we've got folks like Edison that move their company here as well. But, you know, I think there's always a nice mix for it. Right. And there's certain things that people do need to travel for. But 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 I like I, I think that's a great answer. Right. It, it, it's better for everyone if we give everyone the chance to compete, not just on cost, but certainly on quality as well. Right. I, I'm, a, I'm never I've never been a big fan of gotcha. And with our Buka partners, the, the gotcha game has been sort of part of the part of the strategy, which is yep. we have information about you. We will share it with you when we're electrocuting you with it. And other than that, you don't really need to know. And I hate that game. I like the game of here are the standards, either get up to speed, remediate to get to speed or remove yourself from the game. Yeah. Okay. What, okay. So we have another question, right? And maybe I didn't ask it better enough. They said, can Karen elaborate on the question specifically about the centers of excellence claim to fame, which is they don't operate on people who don't need surgery. Right. And I think that's a that's a great question, because one of the things that we are trying to turn the quality conversation into is appropriateness of care. So rather than just talk about quality, because you can be a really good surgeon and do technically good work. But if you're doing it on someone who didn't need it, you've exposed them to a potent, potentially life changing event. I mean, infections, just the, the sheer trauma of going through a surgery that maybe they didn't need. So with our spine committee, we're working on these appropriateness measures. And so it will include things, and I'll refer to this again, it will include things like surgical conversion rates. So we know if we look at how many patients come through your office versus how many people you do a 90-day surgery on, we can calculate a conversion rate to say, 
every, you know, every fourth patient gets a 90 day surgery, every seventh patient gets a 90 day surgery. And then across the nation, because our platform is so large and we have so many orthopedic physicians, uh, we can calculate conversion rates both for a region and for national conversion rates to say it's aggressive if we see this ratio, it's the norm to see this ratio. So, so that's one. The second one is if we look at commercial claims data and we can identify partners who are doing surgery and then the patient is representing within a set period of time, three months, six months for the exact same problem in a different setting, saw an orthopod, had a surgery, three months later, saw a neurosurgeon with the same diagnosis, then we know that that physician's got a, uh, a, re a recurrence rate or a, a shows back up somewhere else rate that is different. So that's another place that we look at um, appropriateness. And then lastly, one of the more interesting things we're working on are condition-based episodes. So in the condition-based episodes that Kevin Bozik has talked about, that Chad Mathers talked about, where you basically paid to take care of a patient irrespective of a, of a procedure or not, you're gonna see these vertically integrated collaborative care models really excel because we have physical therapy. And those physical therapists actually have tools, not just physical, but also using CBT and ACT training to actually help a patient deal with a problem that may not have a mechanical remedy, a surgical remedy, but still needs to be addressed because we want people to live their, their best, most vibrant lives. And even though the payment models haven't yet gotten to the place where they're going to pay for that, we are learning to do it so that when the payment model begins to address it, we'll be ready. So again, independent entrepreneurial physicians who live in the musculoskeletal space are putting their money where their mouth is and saying, we know that condition-based episodes paying for the issue, irrespective of surgery, are really an important part of taking care of patients. And we're gonna train our people to do it before the payment model actually arrives. Gotcha. Okay, we got more questions coming in. So here's a good one, and I don't know the answer to this. Where can we learn what a local conversion rate should be? I would tell you that that is a process that we're, we're going to be releasing our first run of that in our, in our June annual meeting. And fortunately for us, we've got these spine surgeons who are listening to what employers are saying. So the Edison model says that 50% of the time, spine surgery is not clinically indicated. And that could be because the patient's not tuned up. It could be because the procedure was not what they deemed to be the right thing. It could be the patient didn't need surgery at all. And, and we, we're not gonna wring our hands about whether that data is correct. We can all just understand that 50% of the time is a big number. And right. so our spine surgeons have said, you know what, if employers think that 50% of the time we're not doing what we should be doing, then we need to look internally and fix that problem. So those conversion rates are going to become wildly available as we start launching that data with our own people. And, and we're going to market on that. And yeah. again, the other thing I would say, Jim, just real quickly, is when you think about a conversion rate, if you present in an orthopedic practice and you come through primary uh, through physical therapy, so you see a physical therapist in a direct physical therapy role, and then that physical therapist refers you to a sports trained primary care doctor who may try to start working through whatever your musculoskeletal issue is. And then maybe you see physiatry and then it's five visits before you get to a surgeon because people don't think maybe you need surgery and they want to vet all of these other opportunities, physical therapy, NSAIDs, you know, what, whatever it is. Then by the time you get to the spine surgeon, all of those visits would be considered in that conversion rate. So everybody's practice, as you can imagine, is wildly different. Some right. spine surgeons actually take people off the you know, street. You call and say, I'd like to see Dr. Jim. He's, a, he's an orthopedic spine surgeon. And you might see Dr. Jim on the first run. Well, his conversion rate is going to be different than somebody who's 
working in a referral model where people don't get to a spine surgeon until they need spine surgery. Gotcha. That's great. You know, and I'll give a shout out to another ortho forum group that we have a close relationship with. So McBride Orthopedic, right? And, and, and we love them down there. And it's not uncommon for employers or broker advisors to ask us these same questions. And so we actually did a study and we'd love to share it with you, Karen. Uh, and it's been a while, but we actually looked at the same we looked at conversion rates. What's a little bit more unique about our population is we're getting people that have been told they need a specific surgery, right? So they're pretty far along down this pathway. And we looked at a year's worth of data from McBride and actually found across all uh, the surgical uh, uh, opportunities, 34% of the people that had been told they needed surgery ended up being recommended a non-surgical alternative, right? right? And these were people that already been told they had it. Right. Wow. So we'd love that. So here's another question. We're talking a little bit about, you know, this integrated model. So our listener says, should a patient always get their physical therapy at their surgeon's office? I would say yes. And, and the reason I would say that in every state has different laws for physical therapy. So in the law, in the world where physical therapists are allowed to see patients first, and, that, and that's in a lot of places, I actually like the idea of physical therapy being an intake mechanism, particularly for patients who already have a relationship with the practice because your chart is there and all of the information about you is there. And, and because these are collaborative care models, those, and I've seen it many, many times, those physical therapists are communicating directly with physicians in the middle of the care, the episode of care. So they'll go upstairs and say, hey, Dr. Jim, I just saw Mary this morning and she's still having issues with her gait. Like what, what should we do next? They can all look at, they can look and talk about films together. If there are x-rays, these physical therapists actually, and, and occupational therapy, hand therapy is one of my favorite places to have this conversation because the intimacy in a hand therapy clinic is super different than pretty much anywhere else. Cause you're sitting across the table from somebody after you've had a significant hand injury or something congenital and they're spending oftentimes, you know, an hour eyeball to eyeball face to face. Well, these hand therapists also do anatomy labs and a lot of journal clubs with the hand surgeons in that practice. So it really is no pun intended hand and glove care of that patient. Okay. So we have another question and I love these. So keep them coming. So this is from an employer, right? And they said, We've had employees that are getting their third or even fourth back surgery. Like, how can we find out when enough is enough? Here's another place where I am excited about what the, the opportunity that exists in our new world. In our new world, our physicians should be much less concerned about what the buka is begging them to do. Pre-offs, pre-certs, peer reviews. Uh, you know, how they're going to manage modifiers, the amount of time that doctors are spending dealing with payers is ridiculous. So we're really actually, actually asking them to sort of turn the tables and gain those same levels of intimacy and conversation with the employers in the community. So if it's me and I'm running a company and that's what we're faced with, I'm calling that practice. And, and again, if it's one, if I don't know who this is that asked the question, but if it's a practice that I can help with, I will help, I will help uh, port that conversation because we've got to have our doctors understand that the employer, A, is paying the bill, B, is concerned about the employee, at least we hope they are. They're obviously dealing with issues with return to work, which there's lost days, again, you know, sort of borrowing from a workers' comp strategy, but there's lost days in there and, and they should get answers. No, I got it. Okay. So I, I want to be respectful of time, right? So we got about seven minutes, but 
you, you've said something that I'm going to try to say it out loud. I can't say this 10 times in a row, but I think I can say it once. Tell me what a vertically integrated collaborative care model really is. So a vertically integrated collaborative care model is where we cover all aspects of the musculoskeletal system and we manage care for patients in that community seven days a week. So in a vertically integrated care model, you will see orthopedic surgeons, you will see physiatrists and or anesthesiologists who are doing pain management. They may also be doing some anesthesia work, the anesthesiologists in the surgery center or the operatory, but they're doing pain management work. You'll see sports trained primary care doctors. And generally, uh, you see them in a lot of places, obviously with our athletes, but they're also involved oftentimes in helping with lifting urgent cares. And so you've got a physician who's unique, who uniquely understands being a doctor from, you know, cause these are primary care doctors, interns and family practice doctors, who've done a fellowship in, um, in sports medicine to gain some understanding of sort of the more orthopedic side of things. You're going to see PAs and nurse practitioners. So you'll see advanced practice practitioners who are in that practice to help either augment care or to provide greater access to care. You'll see physical and occupational therapists. You'll um, oftentimes see rheumatology. And in some cases, you'll see uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who are also helping on the pain management spectrum. And again, I think the whole idea that you should never have to go to an emergency room absent a trauma or chest pain or something like that, to be able to drop into an urgent care, get the right x-rays, because again, x-rays get taken in a lot of places, Jim, that are um, what I will call traditional doc in the box. Those are not x-ray technologists who are used to taking pictures for musculoskeletal treatment. And the people who are actually looking at those x-rays are not doing just that 24-7. So that's what a vertically integrated collaborative model uh, is. And in, where state law allows, it will include ambulatory surgery centers and imaging. Um, COPN still rears its ugly head oftentimes and prevents us from doing cost-effective care for patients because hospital systems in many cases still hold the cards with our legislators. Gotcha. So because your footprint's so big, if I'm an employer listening to this or I'm a broker advisor listening to this, I can go get this vertically integrated collaborative care model virtually anywhere in the country. That is correct. Okay, here's, a, here's, here's another question. They said, hey, Karen, are there any quality requirements or other criteria in order, for, in order to gain membership within OrthoForum? Ortho Forum is a as a invitation only membership organization, and so uh, make you can certainly email me if you have a group that you think should either be you know nominated, which would be lovely to have you know benefit advisors actually nominate groups that they really have a great relationship with because those are the people that we're after. Uh, we're not looking for groups that are, are distinguishing themselves in negative ways. We're looking for groups that really are community partners and have presented themselves as such. So I, I'd love to get nominations uh, from this group. Perfect. Okay, I think that wraps up the questions. I, I really enjoyed this. I don't think either of us got too loud, but I certainly had fun. I hope you did, Karen. I absolutely did. It was a pleasure. You know, uh, and, and I owe Karen a big thanks. You know, I'll actually be joining Karen later this summer or early in the summer for what will be my first in-person conference right? Which I, I can't believe is happening. I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to go see a bunch of people. So I'll be in New Orleans, uh, right? With all the folks from Ortho Forum in early June. And I'm, I'm beyond excited and, and beyond humbled to get the invitation, right? So oh. I get to grace the stage. So this will be fun. We're excited. Uh, to everyone else that took the time to listen, thank you so much. I hope it's been useful, helpful, informative, and even fun. Karen, again, thanks so much. 
everybody hit me and Karen up on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'd love to connect, have a broader conversation until uh, we get to the next podcast. Take care, stay healthy. Let's get shift done. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Jim. We hope you've enjoyed Flying Zero Studios on our destination to Shift Happens with Jim Milloway. Be sure to subscribe and review our podcast. And don't forget to join us for each and every episode as we accelerate the shift to the member-first economy.